So today, we're back. We're back in the study of James. So we've been in the book of James for five weeks. It, 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 I couldn't believe it was five weeks, actually. And it's six. It, this is five weeks, but it's six if we count Andrew's whole broad view of, of James 2 when I couldn't be here. So, and today, we're finally going to be through chapter 1. Isn't that good? And, and we're going to start in chapter 2 of James. And, in, and we started by saying that James was originally written to Jewish people. James lived in Jerusalem and he wrote out to all these Jewish people that have, that have uh, become Christians. But were, were teetering on, on some of the things they did. And didn't do right. So James says, I'm going to write a letter and straighten you guys out. So that's basically what James did out of Jerusalem. He was in there. He wrote this letter and he sent it out to, to the Jewish uh, Christians. But just because it was written to the Jewish people doesn't mean that it's not relevant for us today. Because all God's word is good and relevant for every day. Not just today, but a hundred years from now. It will, if good Jesus hasn't come back, the word of God is still relevant. It is the word of God. So, and the first chapter of James had introduced several different topics and themes. Now, James will begin on, on to focus on specific situations involving them topics. And so last week, James concluded in chapter 1, verse 22-24, that we must not just be hearers of the word, but we need to be doers. It's not good enough just to hear God's word. And you, you shouldn't just be hearing God's word anyway. You should be reading God's word and hearing it that way every day of the week. You should be in God's word. Because if you're not in God's word, you're not in relationship with him. And you have to be in relationship with God. If you want to be a doer, you need to be in His Word. Because if you're not in His Word, how do you know what to do? See, otherwise, if we don't, we will, be, we will settle for an impure, defiled religion that only focuses on our own interest. You know, that, that is what's happening today in Christianity, especially Christianity in America. The health and prosperity Bible teaching church is about not God, not Jesus. It is about me or you. If you follow that, that is who you, you are doing it for you. It's about your own interests, not God's. I've read the Bible, can't find it anywhere. I could take verses out of context and find it, but I can't take any verse in the Bible and live by what that is destroying Christianity right now, is health and prosperity Bible teaching. So, so that is why we need to be doers. God doesn't exist for us. We exist for Him. We are his creation. When you accepted him as your savior, you also accepted him as your Lord. Because before he was your, before, you had a different Lord. I don't know what it was. 
because I'm not you. But be, before you as a Christian, whenever that date was, when you became a Christian, you worshipped something else, and it wasn't Jesus. It was something that God had created. That's the funny thing, is we have a habit of worshipping creation instead of the creator. See, today's text, we will, f- we will flip that idea on its back. It's a stark contrast telling us to care for widows and orphans. But instead of doing this in James' day, the church was stained, just the way it is now, by worldliness and polluting the church with favoritism for the rich. Simply put, they were putting the teachings of Jesus, they weren't putting the teachings of Jesus into practice. They were only doing what was benefiting them. So they felt like God was their slot machine in the sky. Because that's what I think it is. Because most people pray to God asking for stuff. And wanting their will to come true, not his. Because that's the thing. I believe God is capable of anything. There is nothing that God cannot do. So there's nothing we shouldn't ask for. Okay. But Jesus says, if you ask in my name, he will give it to you. But we're supposed to be in his name, not in our name. So we're supposed to be doing God's work, not our work. So let's start. This is the last two verses of the first chapter of James. If anyone thinks he is, a reli- is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. The nature of true religion. James talks about having a true religion. A religion that is actually true. And, and just saying them words, just saying the word religion freaks me out, by the way, just so you know. I'm a don't like the word religion person. And it sounds strange to people like me. See, it makes me want to cringe. And since James is using it, he regards religion positively. He's not using it negatively. When I think of religion, I think of it negatively. But James is talking about it, and it's in our Bible. So, and, and he's talking about it like it's a good thing. So what does he mean? When he talks about religion. See, but for many evangelical Christians, when they hear the word religion, they express a contempt or a disapproval. You'll hear things like, Jesus hated religious people. And to be fair, Jesus didn't like, he didn't, I wouldn't say he hated because Jesus didn't hate anybody. Okay. 
Jesus didn't like what they were, the practices they were doing for the reason they were doing them. That's what it is. See, religion signifies spiritual exercises that, 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 are, that represent our biblical Christianity. You see, that we, we try to represent our biblical Christianity, but they don't. See, the smell of incest, the chiming of bells, the habits and rituals of vain spirituality. Why are you doing them? That's what we have to ask. Why? The question is always why. Religion is some, uh, religion is some of us feel is what is left when the spirit leaves the building. We could replace religion with tradition. Because people don't like changing traditions. You've, we've done it this way for that long. We should continue to do that for the rest of, until Jesus comes back. Well, the problem with that is culture changes. And if we stay in the past, we will always be in the past. See, religion is also the term of choice for men and women with lukewarm faith. Men and women who wish to add a dash of transcendency to their designing, designer life. See, religious people in this sense don't talk much about their faith. See, they say things like, my religion is my own private concern. And if any of you said that, I'm sorry, because this is going to insult you. But it's God, not me, so just bear with me. It's, it, and they say, it's none of your business. This leads some of us to say that, that the Christian faith is not a religion, for Christ came to condemn religious practices. And to be sure, some religious activities lead people away from God. In fact, religion is usually a word that is disapproved of in the New Testament. There is a piety that removes one from God. The Pharisees who thrived in James's era had that piety. They honored God with their lips. They gave God lip service, but that's all they gave him. They offered God deeds that were good as they defend goodness. They defied goodness. You see, here's the problem with that. Is if I'm the person defying goodness, there's a problem. God is the one who defines goodness. Not me or anyone else. And that's what the Pharisees were doing. And this is what the Pharisees think. This is what religious people think. How good do I have to be to make it through the gates? That, so they do enough deeds, they give enough money, they do enough little things that they think they're paying their way through the gates of heaven. Which is so ridiculous. Because there's nothing that we can do. Nothing that we can do or offer God that he doesn't already have. You can't pay for salvation. It's a free gift 
when you're given it. It costs you something. I'll never say it doesn't cost you something because you've got to give up serving the God that you were serving to serve the real God. So it's going to cost you something. But it's a free gift. You can't pay to get into heaven. You can't do enough good deeds to pay your debt. It's like credit cards. See, they keep them and you pay off the, 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 the you can't pay off faster than you're using it. You know? You keep adding debt. You see, you've been sinning since you were born. Since zero. When do you think you started paying off your debt? If you're a religious person. What are you going to do? Go back in time and, and, not, and, and pay for all the, the sin? That's why like reincarnation blows my mind, by the way. Because the idea of reincarnation... As a, as a religion, is it's the one that really blows my mind. Because here's the thing is, they believe you have to live a life to pay off the debt for your sins before, but then you live a life and you're still sinning. So how do you ever pay off the debt? It would just be rotating over and over again. You'd never, you'd never be free. That's why it doesn't make sense. And like Judge Judy and I say, if it doesn't make sense, it ain't true. See, while the Pharisees heaped up their good works, they neglected the weightier matters of the law. Justice, mercy, and faithfulness. They were just concerned about what they were doing at their rules. See, they kept Remember when Jesus, if, if you've read your Bible, you'll know. When Jesus was walking the earth, and, and for the three years of his ministry, the Pharisees kept saying he was breaking laws. They weren't even laws that God made. They were laws that Pharisees made, a lot of them. You can't do this, because they added, they didn't think God's law was good enough. So they added to it. And said, well, if he says you shouldn't do this, we're going to say, well, we better write a whole list of what that means. See, but still, James uses this word religion positively. So after saying all of that, James is using this positive for, for, for religion is defensible. See, public displays are not necessarily contrary to our faith. See, public ceremonies may be valid or invalid. You see, God himself, God himself instituted some public rituals. See, he ordained circumcision, baptism, the Passover, and the Lord's Supper. He ordained them. So some religious practices are obviously good. Some practices that we do are obviously a good thing because God thought of them, not man. See, he also ordained believers to worship him in sacred throngs in an incense-filled temple filled with choirs and well-robed priests. Do you see, true faith manifests itself publicly and socially. 
If someone questions the public display of religion, James says in effect, does the show of religion frighten you? A religion that never shows itself publicly frightens me. That's what James is saying. Intellectual, intellectual theology, hidden faith, and knowledge that never drive action alarm me. This is what James is saying. It alarms him. If there's no actions for your faith, what faith do you really have? He says, give me something visible. Prove your faith is real by doing the word. By living the word. So James 1, 26, 27, both concludes James 1 and introduces James 2. So it is a conclusion to James 1, but it's introdu- introducing what he's going to talk about basically for the rest of the book. Earlier paragraphs said, genuine faith preserves through trials and receives the word as a means of preserving the faith. Now, James specifies the behavior that genuine faith will manifest. See, these marks of real faith become themes that James will explore throughout his whole letter. See, good deeds to the poor and needy dominate. Chapter 2, 14 through 26. Control of the tongue is the theme of uh, chapter 3, 1 through 12. And staying unstained by the world governs free. World governs free. James 3, 13 through 5, 6. So, yet instead of launching into these topics all at once, James begins with the apparently trivial problem of favoritism. So clearly his interest in proper treatment of the poor develops, develops the widows and orphans theme. But I think James has something more in mind. So let's continue. Chapter 2, verse 1 through 4. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or you sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil Thoughts. See, there's a test of true faith. Favoritism. See, James states his theme at once. He's not beating around any bushes. He says, those who believe in Christ should show no partiality at all. There should be no favoritism. Indeed, James suggests that faith and favoritism Favoritism are incap- incompatible. To translate this passage, this text, tr- tr- literally, James 1 says, Do not hold faith in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ with favoritism. They can't be together. The word translated favoritism is it's a compound word from the Old Testament 
To be hyperliteral, James forbids Christians to receive a face. That is, believers should not prefer one person over another because of their appearance, their face, their clothes, or any other aspect of their outward appearance. Christians should see people from the inside. Shouldn't matter what they look like. See, favoritism is almost a constant in our human society. See, some years ago, a group researched the way someone's clothing affects the ways others perceive him. So they put a man on the street in a business district in New York City. And he was pleading for cash with this line. I've lost my wallet and need money for a taxi to the airport. This is my name and address and phone number. If you loan me money, I'll repay you as soon as I get home. They put the man wearing the same suit on the same street, using the same line on consecutive weekdays. But in a year, when beige was the proper attire, he wore a beige overcoat one day and a black the next. The result, his proceeds on the beige day doubled. His proceeds on the black day. It was simple favoritism. That's amazing. That we subconsciously show favoritism to people. See, humans play favorites. We judge by appearance, but God does not. Scripture says... Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart, 1 Samuel 16, 7. See, in a few lines, James sketches a vivid scene. To illustrate his point, he writes, For a man, if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothes comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here, In a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges and evil thoughts? You see, the people of God have gathered. Seats are scarce. I wish that was the case here. Two men arrive at once. One wears fine clothes and a golden ring of wealth. Other wears the shabby rags of poverty. And by the way, Jesus would be the shabby guy. Someone near the back watches them enter and makes a decision. See, the rich man, he's going to take the last good seat in the building. The poor man will stand in the corner or sit on the floor. You see, the story is spare. We do not know if the people have gathered to worship, to study, or perhaps to resolve a dispute in their community. We don't know, because James doesn't tell us. We don't even know if the two men are believers or not. If they attend regularly or not. If they have friends in the assembly or not. We know just this. Two men entered gathering, a gathering of believers. One wears gold, the other wears rags. 
See, the problem is today a gold ring indicates marital status more than economic status and costly clothes may not prove a thing. See, if anyone wears blue jeans, clothes lose, uh, lose their capacity to make status, but we still have ways to identify, identify social rank. You can be talking to people and know their social rank. And we can show favoritism to people that we presume are higher up the social ranking of the world. And we'll say, we, we will, will not show favoritism to the lower ranking people. And some people, it is plain still. They wear dirty clothes, they smile. But Jesus would have loved them too. Jesus would have offered them to sit by them. You know, that is who we're supposed to emulate, is Jesus. We're supposed to look like Jesus. We're supposed to be reflections of the Savior. See, uh, we would say we'd never do that in this church. For one, we don't usher people and make them sit anywhere. But if there was no seats, and this happens sometimes, that they're, they're the, the ushers today are trained a little better than the ushers, obviously, in James' day. Because they would be told not to do this. But they would still throw favoritism, but just in a different way. See, we still find ways to favor people who look and act like us. We like people that act like us. We can witness to people that are like us. But we're not supposed to just interact with people we like. For one, I don't, have to like, I don't have to like everybody anyway. I have to love everybody. So I have to interact with everybody like I love them. Whether I like them or not. If I call myself a Christian, that is what you've been told by God, your Lord. To treat all people Non-believers or believers. Doesn't matter where they come from. We are supposed to treat everyone the same. He goes on to say, James 2, 5 through 7. Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? which he has promised to those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you to court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? See, favoritism violates all three elements of true faith that James talks about. We may all reply, yes, favoritism is wrong. We're all going to say, playing favorites is wrong. But why begin a discussion of true religion with such a trivial issue? It's hard even to stay aware of low-grade favoritism. Every culture and every subculture does it. It's our human nature to play favorites. It's just in our DNA. 
We just do it. It's our sinful nature. See, but perhaps James is wise to analyze an apparently trivial issue. The little things reveal the heart, you see. In England, they have a saying. The true gentleman, and I'm not a true gentleman, by the way. The true gentleman uses the proper fork even when he dines alone. The true Christian acts the same. Whether people are watching or people are not. It should be a way of life. You see, the little things reveal whether our faith is true or false. And trivial as it seems, favoritism touches all phrases of true faith. See, recall firstly that that true religion helps the poor. Favoritism insults and dishonors them. Though God... Loved them and chose them for himself, as James said in verses 5 through 6. See, true faith helps the poor, but favoritism insults them. See, the poor are forever told to sit on the floor and stand in the corner. This is happening in society today. You see, we have places... For the poor to live. So we push them there. So they could all hang out together. We segregate societies. That's playing favoritism. That is playing favoritism. See. The thing is. There is only one community in this world. Where all should get equal treatment. And that is the church. Not just this church. The church of Jesus Christ. We should all be able to walk in any church. Dressed anyhow. And not be looked at. Like we don't belong. And if they do. Do you know what's going to be funny? When they get to heaven. Because there's going to be a lot of people there that they didn't think should be. You see? The ground, as the saying goes, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. It's level at the foot of the cross. The ground is level. It doesn't matter who you are. Everybody has the same grace offered to them. Wherever you were born, whatever culture that you were born into, the ground is level at the cross. You see, and everyone who is seated with Christ has a prime seat. They don't have the back row seat. They have the prime seat because we are seated with Christ Jesus. See, rich and poor, young and old, male and female, all come as sinners in the need of Christ and His grace. That is why the ideal church has people from all different cultures. 
Not just one culture. They have all different races. They have all different economical standards of living. That's the ideal church because that is what the church is supposed to look like. See, all of us sinners in need of Christ and his grace. All of us are. No matter where you grew up. It doesn't matter. We all need the same Christ and the same grace. See, whoever we are, by the world standards, we are orphaned. We are orphaned by our sin. And we are adopted into God's family by His grace. In God's sight, we are one. Therefore, the church should treat everyone the same. When we play favorites, we deny his gospel, his story. See, by the gospel, God has chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world. Favoritism means the poor gets a seat at the back and sit on the floor, even at church. See, secondly, true faith is unstained by the world, but favoritism is 100% worldly. There will be no favoritism in heaven. See, the world inclination continues to prefer the rich over the poor. Favoritism rejects God's decision to grant equal honor to the poor and to the rich. Favoritism forgets God's will and seeks the favor of the rich by giving them special attention. And favoritism is foolish since the rich often use their power to exploit the poor Taking them to court and slandering God's name is what James says. And that still happens today. Favoritism does not work. See, but favoritism, it uses the tongue to hurt the poor. See, if it may be unintentional, but verbal snubs because of the way you look or the way you act, Wound people. So then favoritism fails every test of true faith. It abuses the tongue. It is stained by the world and insults the poor. And favoritism is common. But James calls it false judgment. James 2.4 said it contradicts God's values. It also contradicts the gospel. For God chose the poor to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom of God. So, what lessons can we learn from favoritism? Morally speaking, favoritism is a social sin. We see it in our world today. Theologically, favoritism implements implicitly denies that God has chosen the poor. In the ancient world, you see, the poor were despised and they were ignored. They were exploited through slavery and controlled through handouts. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? 
Sounds familiar. The world hasn't changed much, by the way. Slavery is, there's more people in slavery now than there has ever been in the whole history of the world. Right now. Right now. There are kids being took to be groomed to be sex slaves or housemaids or whatever. Now, today. We don't talk about it though, do we? We don't talk about it. We don't talk about slavery today. Slavery today is far worse than it's ever been. Yet we don't talk about it. Not in present tense anyway. And we know that it is controlled by handouts. The poor are controlled by handouts. Because, you see, if you want to keep somebody down, if you want to keep somebody... It's actually slavery, by the way. Because you're keeping somebody in a situation because you want to keep them there. So you give them handouts just to get them so they can get enough by and then not have to work. And they live and they're really slaves. And we do this. Not Christians, I hope, but, the, but, but this is happening in the world today because we still play favorites. See, we still have ways of despising the poor today, although some things have changed. One thing, we differentiate between the poor. Our society is a... I know, it more, I know this word, but I don't know how to pronounce it, so... Meritocracy. We are we we're a community that if you if you if you live in this world and have skills, training, and a good work ethic, you will rise. You will rise. And I'm not saying that all people have equal standing because I don't believe that. But I believe if you put in a hard day's work. And you actually apply the skills that you have, that God has gave you, you can be good. And especially if you're born in America, or live in America as me. You, you can, there's no excuse to not being, but we're already, the poorest people in America are still richer than most people in the world. So, so near enough, everybody in America is considered rich. So, uh, So financial poverty does not by itself make someone an outcast. See, that's not just what he's talking about. If a poor young woman is bright, uh, articulated, talented, winsome, and attractive, we will treat her well because we can foresee her future. So we will treat them well because we can see them. So we're already praying favoritisms. They might not be rich now, but they're probably going to be rich in the future. See, if a young man is financially poor but otherwise rich, we will treat him with respect because now we see the potential in the people. See, we follow James most truly when we respect all people. See, we respect those who are poor in personality, the dull and the complaining. We have to respect them too. We respect those who are poor in mind, 
the slow and the uneducated. And we respect those who are poor in body, the wrinkled, the bold. We respect all people. We don't judge people because the way they are, the way they look. In short, we should honor poor students who bristle with potential and we should honor unskilled laborers who will probably stay poor in this society. In the gospel, God honors every son and every daughter who believes in him. Let's remember the church is a, I've been saying this for the last year and a, a family. A church is a family, not a club. Not a club. And favoritism has no place in a family. Favoritism has no place in a family. I'm not saying it doesn't happen because I believe it does. But it has no place in a family. When we love and receive all kinds of people, it shows that God's way are becoming our ways. For God loves the poor. We emulate God's character and obey his will when we refuse to play favorites. See, when James says that God has chosen those who are poor in the world, he means those who are physically and financially poor, not just poor in spirit. This does not mean God refuses to save the rich. There are many wealthy believers in Scripture. Yet, as Paul says, not many of the first Christians were powerful or nobly born. See, most of Christians were poor because most ancient people were poor. How about that? They were slaves, serfs, farmers, artisans, and petty merchants. See, earlier God chose Israel Israel, and delivered her as a slave nation out of Egypt. To this day, on a global scale, most people could justifiably be called poor. If God has bestowed his kingdom upon poor believers, we must respect them. And also, also, James adds, it is senseless to bestow special honors upon the rich. We should love the rich, even as we love all. All humanity, but God has not especially chosen or favored them. See, therefore, we should resist the temptation of favoring the rich and powerful in the hope of getting something back. James says, don't bother. The rich may take your favors, but may not return them. Therefore, let no one be dazzled by wealth. Let us Let us neither curry their favor. Using three rhetorical questions, James charges rich unbelievers as a class with three sins, exploiting poor Christians, dragging them to court, and slandering the name of God. See, our our tests of true faith. See, James chooses his examples wisely. See, we recoil when we meet a shabby person who smells bad, even if he is a brother in the faith. See, caught off guard, we tend to favor the rich over the poor. Does this mean we have failed the test of true religion? 
Because I'm sure everyone in here has done this. Favored people because of who they are. See, I believe James planned for this question to arise. See, at first it seems that he simply tells us we ought to pass the three tests of genuine faith. If we can't pass them, we're out. We must help the poor. We must treat them with dignity and assist them. We must not say, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed. We must do something. But, meditate, but meditative, meditative readers wonder, can we refrain? Can we actually refrain from, from favoritism for the rich? Will we really help our needy brothers or will we be content to offer kind wishes? If so, we will, we, we will have failed the first test. Our doubts intensify in the next section on control of the tongue. It begins like this. James 3, 1, 2, and 7, and 8. Not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. By the way, that text right there is the reason I didn't sleep very well for the first two months and had anxiety for the first time in my life. Because I know that one day I am going to face a God and He is going to ask me. I know I'm saved. But he's going to ask me, what did you do with the sheep that I gave you to feed? And if I can't tell him, because he already knows, if I don't do that and I don't feed the sheep and give them the Bible and not some nice theology that you want to hear and not give you the truth, I can't live with myself. That's why sometimes I might sound harsh, but I'm going to preach from the Bible And tell you the truth, what Jesus says, because of that text. Because I know one day that I am going to be judged by God for my actions here. See, we all stumble in many ways. If anyone is, is never at fault in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to keep his whole body in check. How many of us can do that? See, all kinds of animals, birds, reptiles have been tamed by man, but no man can tame his tongue. That's what James 7 through 8 says. No man can tame his tongue. But he's told us we need to tame our tongue. Oh my gosh. This is a condumrum. I mean, what are we supposed to do? You see, the religion, true religion controls the tongue Verse 126 says, but James says, no man can tame the tongue, therefore we fail test two. So now we fail two tests. We're not doing too good, are we? The same thing happens with test three. True religion is unspotted by the world, but James says, we are adulterers who try to love both God and the world. James 4.4, we want the world's riches and we quarrel and fight to get them. James 4.1 says, Are you feeling miserable now? Are you feeling miserable? When I was writing this, I was feeling miserable, by the way. James seems to ask that question. That is good 
for we are ready for James' gospel. See, that's what he's getting us ready for. This text is to get us ready because we're not ready. James' gospel only when we see that we cannot pass these three tests of true religion. As he says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. Yes, you're going to fail the three tests. And by the way, it's not about perfection. It's about progress, not perfection. We're supposed to be coming, becoming more like Jesus. We're not there yet. Because we're still here. See, the question, do we play favorites? Humble us, God. Humble us. When we see it, ask God. And our failures... Our failure obligates us to humble ourselves before the Lord and acknowledge our sin because that is what it is. James is showing us that we are still sinners and we have sin to repent of. See, being a Christian isn't just asking God for stuff. It's it's confessing your sin to him on a daily, sometimes secondly Thing every day. Because by the way, I'm just going to give you a heads up. Nobody's not going to sin today. Nobody in this room is going to not sin the rest of the day. Just ain't going to happen. Because even if you think you've done perfect thing, you're going to think something you shouldn't have thought. And Jesus says that's a sin. So, nobody's perfect. So you should be not just, you should be confessing to God. See, this prayer of humility is good for everybody. Lord, I am a sinner and I cannot stop sinning. I play favorites. I am stained by this world. I ignore the needy. My tongue is out of control. My only hope is your mercy. Please forgive me for Jesus' sake. Because he's the one who has forgiven you. And by the way, heads up. You don't confess your sins because God doesn't know them. I mean, that's the beauty of confessing your sins. God already knows your sin. So you're not telling him anything that he doesn't already know. You're just telling it. Do you know why you tell him? Because then you realize that it's a sin. And then God changes your heart. So that sin won't be the same. If you use this, do you know Shrek? Have you ever watched uh, Shrek, the cartoon? Well, when Donkey and Shrek are taking a walk, Donkey says to Shrek, what are ogres like? And he goes, we have layers. And he goes, what, like a parfait? And, and he says, no, not like a parfait. He says, like an onion. We have layers. And I think that's Christian's. We're like an onion, a big onion with lots of layers. And you see, when you first became a Christian, that big in-your-face sins, you peeled the peel off. But the deeper you follow God, the deeper you're in the world, you see sins that you didn't even know were sins in your life. And then you peel them layers off. But then God shows you even deeper sin, and you can peel them off. 
That's why we need to talk to God and tell him our sin. So we realize that it's a sin. Not because he knows. He knows everything. You can't tell him something that he doesn't know. See, it, it is a good prayer for those who are unsure if they are right with God. It speaks to those who hope they are going to heaven because they are trying hard to be good. It says that however hard you try, you will never be good enough to earn heaven. See, I don't do the things I do because I think it's going to get me a bigger crown in heaven. I do them because I get to. I am blown away that God would use me. I am a royal screw-up from day one. From day one. I have done nothing. And I'm not talking as a pastor. I'm saying my whole life. As why God would choose somebody like me to preach his word is beyond me. Is beyond me. I mean, my teacher couldn't get me to speak in front of the class. And now they can't get me to shut up. So, so God uses me. But that's because I let him. Because I feel this is my privilege. I get to be a part of his big plan. He doesn't need me. But he wants to use me. And then I go, I get it. I want to be a part of your plan. I want to do the things that you want me to do, God. I want to follow you. Because you're a good God and a good king and a good Lord. All the lords I followed before, they sucked. But you are awesome. You see, we have to remember that God is gracious enough to give heaven to those who repent and believe. See, prayers of repentance are also good for those who know and love Jesus, who have asked him to forgive their sins. Because we sin daily, we need to repent again and again and again. And we need to ask for God's grace again and again and again. And then, after we ask for his grace and his mercy, we have to rest in the gospel again. Because we're not going to get this perfect. We will never pass all the tests. But thank God that we don't have to. Because there's one that passed every test. His name is Jesus. And he's the one who made us members of his family. In the gospel, he has cared for us. And in our poverty and our distress, he will still care for us. He never forsakes you. He always loves you. All you have to do is ask. Again, progress, not perfection. It's never about perfection. Because there's no perfect human beings. That's why we have a savior named Jesus. Because we can't live a perfect life. So, to get ready for next week's sermon, we're going to read James 2, 8 through 13. And we're going to talk about all or nothing. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you today. We thank you that you are an awesome, amazing God. Who, yes, you want us to be better.
You want us not to play favoritism. You want us to look after uh, the needy, the poor, the widows. But without you, God, we can't do that. And we are going to mess this up because we are human. We still have a sin nature that tries to claw out all the time. I ask God that you can help us as only you can. Light the spirit inside us. How is not to show favoritism? Help us be people that, that when people look at us, we shine bright and they can see Jesus in every one of our faces. In Jesus' name I ask. Uh, amen.